2: And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land, and this is about you. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. Science is wild. Take DNA. It lets you do a whole lot more than just find out who your ancestors were. Imagine using DNA to isolate and map sequences that accurately predict cuteness in babies. I'm looking at it right now. A detailed graph that is illustrating research in which DNA samples were taken in utero from 2100 first trimester fetuses. The samples were then used to tell parents within 93% accuracy whether their babies would be born cute or downright unpleasant. Wait. Oh. Th- 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 this is actually a graph that's illustrating levels of listeria contamination in imported cheese. Somebody just swapped out the title. Okay, that that was kind of dumb and 100% fake. But it was dumb and fake for a purpose. Because the truth is, if somebody did falsify data, if in providing evidence to back up a big scientific claim, a scientist simply bullshit everyone by providing something that looked like evidence, would I be able to tell the difference? Would anyone in the general interest press? Or would we just assume that, It must be the real deal because it came from science, and if it was fake, well, surely someone from science would have caught it, right? Turns out, no, not necessarily. Today, you're gonna hear a story in which that dumb made-up scenario that I just described actually happened. A Canadian scientist was challenged to back up his claim that he could use DNA to distinguish between different strains of cannabis which would have been a pretty valuable thing to be able to do during the weed marketing gold rush. So, to prove it, he just took a graph of United States arrest data, changed the title, and put it in a presentation to say, here, here's my evidence. He did a lot more than that. And he would have gotten away with it too, if not for some meddlesome researchers. This is a story that we found in the scientific press. Our senior producer, Sarah Lorniuk, has turned it into an audio story for you. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Liza Balkin, Joshua Hind, Alex Weber, Chris Hicks, Kelsey Walker, Garrett Devins, Ray McQuam. And Roz,
0: my name is Roz, and I'm a lawyer from Hamilton.
3: I like and support Canada Land because I find it provides a deep dives into the news and what's going on in Canada, as well as some quick coverage um, from hosts with a diverse and varied backgrounds. And while I don't always agree, I always find that I'm informed.
4: It certainly surprised no one on the Canada Land team when I came to them with a pitch for this week's story from a geeky science magazine. Jesse's words, not mine. But you know what? I'll wear that nerd badge proudly, especially on days like today when I get a chance to tell you a story I found in one of those magazines that really made me go, whoa. More people need to hear that wild story.
3: My name is Charles Piller, and I'm an investigative reporter for Science Magazine.
4: That wild story was written by Charles, a journalist from Oakland, California, who dug up one hell of a scoop on the goings-on at one Canadian university and with one professor in particular. And this story really has the potential to shake the foundations of trust in science in this country. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. This all starts with a botany professor at the University of Guelph named Stephen Newmaster.
3: I think Newmaster is an exceptional character in a number of ways. He's uh, charismatic, articulate, charming. He's a guy who people naturally like and
0: are drawn to. I've spent my life looking at plants, studying plants. I'm a classic botanist that crawls around in the woods, names new species of plants. Back in June, I was in the Amazon looking for a particular species. We had to go deep into Manao, down a bunch of tributaries of the Amazon. This is the type of work that I do.
4: Stephen Newmaster's star really rose in Canadian academia in 2013. And I know the idea of a star botanist might be new to you, but stay with me. In 2013, Newmaster published a research exposé that was widely picked up by media outlets across Canada and the United States. He looked at 44 different types of herbal supplements and products, things like echinacea, St. John's wort, you know the stuff. And he wrote about how he used DNA barcoding technology to look at these products. And what he found was that much of it was fake.
3: When he first came out with his uh, very, very widely read article, and widely acclaimed article on the testing of nutritional supplements in 2013, Uh, it really gave the industry a black eye. And it led to uh, actions in New York State by the Attorney General there that uh, caused uh, large companies to pull their products off the shelves This was a huge, huge problem for the nutritional supplement industry.
4: And new at 5, Attorney General Eric Schneiderman is now asking four major retailers to stop selling certain supplements in New York State over labeling concerns. His office sent cease and desist letters today to GNC, Target, Walgreens, and Walmart. Schneiderman says their store brand herbal supplements either could not be verified to actually contain the labeled substance or were found to contain ingredients not listed on the labels. But the industry was desperate to save face. And with that, a new opportunity presented itself for Stephen Newmaster, who, as it turns out, happened to own a business specializing in the certification of herbal products.
3: What was so interesting about it to me was that the herbal supplement companies, many of them said, okay, we're going to take this to heart. We're going to hire the person who's criticized us to help us become better. And so they hired Newmaster to do their testing and to certify their products, to give his figurative and literal seal of approval that was printed on the company's products, and then to sell those products with that seal of approval.
4: This all changed how the nutritional supplement business operated, how things were tested and marketed. It turned it all on its head. But that was just the prelude to the story that Charles was telling. Earlier, I played a clip for you of Charles describing Stephen Newmaster, but I didn't play all of it. Let's hear that back for a second.
3: I think Newmaster is an exceptional character in a number of ways. He's uh, charismatic, articulate, charming. He's a guy who people naturally like and are drawn to. He's also someone that our investigation found has a history of plagiarism, of exaggeration, fabulism, basically just making up stuff about what he's
4: done and how important he is. Ah, there it is. All of a sudden, this story gets really meta. A professor accuses an unregulated industry of fraud, only to then be accused of fraud himself.
3: And lo and behold, now we learn that the things that they were doing to make their products legit were based on an article that is now regarded as fraudulent and is under review by the journal that published it.
4: The Nutritional Supplement article, published in BMC Medicine, now has at the top of it an editor's note that says, quote, Readers are alerted that concerns have been raised with respect to the reliability of the data presented in this article, end quote. This was the direct result of the digging done by Charles and a number of academics over the past few months and years. But the trail of breadcrumbs they followed suggests a continued pattern of behavior that has been left unchecked for years.
3: Mr. founded a nonprofit within the University of Guelph, the Natural Health Products Research Alliance, and it raised money from a variety of nutritional supplement companies whose products this organization would test and then certify as legitimate good products. And putting aside for a second the question about whether that testing was actually accurate or valuable in any way, one of the things that Newmaster did to promote this organization was listing his many august strategic partners. That's the phrase he used. These included the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, U.S. Pharmacopeia, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, the Canadian National Research Council and the American Botanical Council. So hearing about all of these important agencies as being the strategic partners of New Masters Group certainly would encourage donations and credit to the organization. Turns out none of those organizations had any defined relationship with New Masters organization. None. And so the question is how does he continue to just put out this information that is exaggerating, apparently making stuff up, uh, borrowing from other people, plagiarizing over and over and over again and for over a period of years with no one doing anything about it. No, Either no one noticing or no one feeling like they could do anything about it. Um, to, to me that seemed a, a very strange part of it until of course Ken Thompson, I think, quite courageously spoke up and started to ask serious questions about Newmaster's work and his own uh, writing um, with Newmaster and how that went for him.
1: So my name is Ken Thompson. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at Stanford University.
4: Ken Thompson is absolutely critical to this story because... While the research underpinning the nutritional supplement article has now been called into question, it wasn't the first domino to fall.
1: Yeah, so Stephen Newmaster, so he's a professor at the University of Guelph, has been for over 20 years. And he was my research supervisor for one of my major undergraduate projects back in 2013-2014.
4: His research started with an interest in DNA barcoding, technology that one particular botany professor was an expert in.
1: So I was assigned as a part of my undergraduate uh, degree program to complete a research project in Stephen Newmaster's lab. And his research at the time focused a lot on the technology of DNA barcoding, which is a technique or a technology that allows researchers to use a small bit of DNA to figure out what species an organism is, it's kind of like barcodes at a supermarket. You know, the cashier will scan the barcode and it'll say, "Okay, you know, this is this particular product." So, what we wanted to do for our project, or in the, in the data that Steve gave me, was trying to figure out if you can use DNA barcoding to quickly, cheaply, and accurately identify the plant species that live in a particular plot of forest.
4: This research, if it proved to be effective, could save so much valuable time and money in data collection. Typically, what's done for environmental monitoring projects or other projects where the types of plants in an area needs to be understood is that experts will go out and canvas a plot of land over time. It's expensive, painstaking, and time-consuming to hire experts to do this. So what if you could hire just anyone to go out and collect samples and then researchers could scan them in a lab instead.
1: You just say, collect everything that looks different, uh, sequence it, and then tell us what's there. And so Steve gave me this data set that was from a study he claimed, and then over the next year we worked together and I I published it in the journal Biodiversity and Conservation, um, and haven't really (laughs) worked with or talked with Steve since.
4: The research concluded that DNA barcoding was far more effective at identifying plants in a plot of land, finding vastly more species than relying on human identification alone. And it cost 37% less to do it. It was Ken Thompson's first piece of published research, a start to a career that's then taken him across Canada and now to Stanford University.
1: Over time, sort of throughout my uh, my master's and my PhD, I started to work more with genetic data. And then I started to think more and more about that data set that Steve had given me in the past and It seemed a little bit too clean to me.
4: What does he mean by that, too clean? Basically, the barcode data showed more than it should have been able to. Barcoding, for example, shouldn't be able to differentiate between different species of willows. But this data did.
1: Pretty much all the willows in Ontario are genetically identical at the spots in the genome that we use as the barcodes. Um, And our study claimed to have distinguished all these willow species using barcodes. And I knew that was pretty much impossible.
4: So this is what had Ken worried, but not like really worried, at least not
1: yet. If you think you might find something bad, it's kind of difficult to overcome the resistance in your own mind to like, you know, take a deep look. It's kind of easy to just not look. But eventually I just said, you know, why don't I go and take a look at that genetic data and see what I find just to just to set my mind at ease.
4: But looking at data at a university he was no longer working with wasn't so simple. So Ken followed the formal process and submitted his concerns about the research to one of the deans at the university.
1: I thought it was unlikely that the data were going to have been generated with the highest integrity. But I wanted to approach the situation in good faith and just sort of, you know, maybe I was misunderstanding something. So I did file uh, an allegation of uh, misconduct. And I I went through the formal process at the University of Guelph, which is that you write to the the dean of the College of Biological Sciences. You send a sort of a, a document just sort of outlining the facts.
4: On further investigation, Ken found that the raw information Stephen Newmaster had given him was never published to any of the open source data collection banks that exist to provide transparency for instances of concern like this one. And uploading this information is the standard practice.
1: Steve, back in 2013-2014, was supposed to upload the genetic data to these sort of repositories of of genetic data. They're called GenBank and and also the Guelph database, the Barcode of Life database. And so when I went back to look, it turned out that Steve actually hadn't ever submitted the data. There was nothing there from our study. And that was somewhat surprising to me because we said we were, were supposed to do it. If there's no data on GenBank, that's consistent with maybe there never being any data. At first, what I really wanted the University of Guelph to do is just, you know, confirm, basically look for receipts. You know, confirm that there were um, people hired for this project, for example. Check those internal databases.
4: And so Ken launched what he thought was a formal investigation at the University of Guelph in early 2020.
1: And then in the sort of interim, the COVID pandemic kicked off the the um, inquiry or the investigation took longer than it was supposed to have, but I figured, you know, it's a kind of unprecedented time. I'm okay with being a little bit patient. And then about eight months later, the dean wrote back to me and said, oh, I misspoke, uh, I didn't start an investigation. I just thought you were asking me for advice. There's nothing to see here.
4: He got the complete runaround. And so Ken at this point felt kind of helpless to actually have his concerns investigated.
1: I collected additional evidence, and I sent it, and and then they said, nope. And I collected additional evidence, and I sent it, and they said, nope. Um, And this happened three or four times. Then I eventually tried to get the journal to investigate, and they said, you know what, we're just going to defer to what the university did.
4: But at the same time, Ken was going through some inner turmoil about this. What would it mean if he had his own research retracted? And honestly, hadn't he done enough? He'd brought it up with the school. Did he need to do more?
1: first of all, you know, I worked hard on this paper and it was fraudulent and I was worried about my own reputation. You know, I I think what the University of Guelph did, which was all these senior administrators and deans sort of telling me that everything I was showing them was not even close to anything that they would investigate for research misconduct, made me have a lot of self-doubt about my own ability to evaluate this thing. Um, And so, you know, I was feeling pretty nervous and pretty low at the time that I filed the allegation. But I I just felt that I wasn't convinced that they did a thorough job investigating my complaints, and I just felt, you know, I think there's something here.
4: And the more time passed, the more Ken poked around, and the more sure he became that he was on to something. So he went public. Not by talking to a reporter, at least not initially. No, he posted to a popular academic ecology blog. And from there, it got the attention of others in the field.
1: One of the most important developments, um, especially to my own, you know, psychology and my morale, was that within about 24 hours of me posting that blog post on this Eco Evo Eco website, Paul Bear, who's a professor at the University of Guelph, you know, member of Order of Canada, and perhaps most importantly, essentially the the guy who's really pioneered DNA barcoding and built this whole research institute at the University of Guelph, posted a public comment and response to me saying. You know, I think this guy's concerns are legitimate.
4: PolyBear's support went beyond just helpful comments on the blog posting, though.
1: When I read that blog post, you know, I knew
5: that we could validate one of his concerns. And that was that, was the data available? Was the underpinning data available? And I say that because the paper indicated the data, the sequence data, had been collected in the research center that I oversee. And our records indicated that we had not gathered any such data. And secondly, I checked with the lead of my informatics unit who confirmed there had been no data deposited in the Barcode of Life data system. I was very concerned that the data did not exist.
4: And so Polly Bear was now joining Ken Thompson in the quest to dig deeper. More on this after the break.
2: Help as the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get ten percent off of your first month at BetterHelp.com/CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com/CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope.
4: Paul and Ken grew their team further. Six other industry experts from different institutions across Canada also started digging. And last summer, they filed a second complaint against Stephen Newmaster. And this time, it wasn't just about the data used in Ken's research. It was widespread. In addition to fraudulent research practices, the allegation also outlined how the complainants believed Stephen Newmaster was guilty of plagiarism by way of using researchers' datasets without their knowledge. The complaint also alleges that Newmaster failed to disclose financial conflicts of interest in his research. Charles Piller said that the University of Guelph would not provide any details of Stephen Newmaster's financial interests when he requested financial disclosure documents.
1: So we filed a new allegation in June of 2021, and this time we were very careful that the specific process was followed. You know, back in 2020, I wasn't as Familiar with the process, I didn't realize that, you know, there had to be an independent member on this investigation committee and, and, and that sort of thing. And so this time we filed a 43-page allegation with a lot of evidence.
5: I think things began fairly enough. There are established
1: protocols and that led to a formal investigation. Unfortunately, this dean who started the investigation was kicked off the committee. We don't know why.
4: So the dean that agreed to finally start a formal investigation was then removed from it. And then a committee was assembled that would conduct a formal investigation. But there's been some doubt cast on whether or not the people selected were maybe the right people to investigate this particular complaint. Let's bring in reporter Charles Piller again to explain.
3: The committee that was appointed to review the complaint against Newmaster by his uh, colleagues and others about his three academic studies, none of the members of that committee had... Any expertise in the subject matter that would allow them to evaluate the concerns so they relied heavily on a outside consultant whose name they never provided so no one knows who that consultant was no one knows whether that person also has a conflict of interest
1: they initially offered to only have a single 30-minute interview with all eight of us which is obviously extremely insufficient to cover the details here And when we did meet with them, it seemed like they really didn't do their homework. They didn't have very good questions. They were asking some questions that I kind of thought, like, are you kidding? Are you seriously asking this right now? Um, And then we never met with them again.
4: And so a year passes. Charles Piller publishes his first article on this mess in February, while the results of the investigation are pending. But June 1st was the day they were waiting for.
1: They told us that the decision was going to come on June 1st. They hadn't talked to us at all about anything So it seemed like they just had approached this entire thing with bad faith, and it was not surprising.
4: Not surprising in that the university found Stephen Newmaster was not guilty of misconduct. The preliminary decision from the committee's chairman says that Newmaster, quote, displayed a pattern of poor judgment and failed to apply the standards reasonably expected in research activity in his discipline, end quote. But the decision says that there was insufficient evidence to find Newmaster guilty of misconduct in relation to any of the three studies that he had published that the complainants had included in their allegation.
5: I think it's fair to say that we're disappointed with the way in which uh, that has unfolded.
1: They said we found no evidence of fraud in any of these allegations we made in the 43 pages of our initial allegation. And that really floored us. But I kind of thought that maybe, you know, with seven other people with detailed access to the internal records showing that there never was any data generated, that they would at least have to acknowledge reality that there's something seriously wrong here. And they never did.
4: The big question in this case does appear to be, why? If the case against Stephen Newmaster is so strong, then why would they find him not guilty of misconduct? Charles thinks it's threefold.
3: One is that there are close relationships between some university administrators at Newmaster that go back years. Uh, Second, he's a pretty high-profile guy who's brought in a bunch of money, and they are undoubtedly concerned about aspects of that. For example, if some of his work was found to be fraudulent by a government agency, they could try to claw back that money, which would be harmful to the university. I think, though, the more important thing is the potential reputational effects on the University of Guelph, which is a large university that has a lot to protect in regard to its reputation. And if the university were to come down on Newmaster for what looks to be like a multi-year record of all of the kinds of apparently fraudulent activities that were uncovered by myself and also by the people who wrote the complaint against him, that would be a pretty significant reputational hit against the university.
4: The other aspect of this is that Newmaster was able to create within the university a funding body called the Natural Health Products Research Alliance that collects funding for Newmaster's work. But instead of being arm's length from the university, as it would normally be, It is embedded within the university's Alumni Affairs Department, and this means that admitting fraudulent activity would likely directly turn off a stream of funding for the university. But also, what would the University of Guelph say to all of the donors who have given money for this research to date?
5: So I think they're probably trying desperately to shut this thing down for all the wrong reasons.
4: I asked Stephen Newmaster for an interview for this story, and Charles Piller asked for the story that ran in Science but he has not responded to any interview requests. In his written response to the University of Guelph submitted during the investigation, he flatly denies being guilty of manufacturing or manipulating data. According to Newmaster, the mistakes were just an oversight and somebody else's mistake, not his. He even went ahead and set it straight, uploading the data that should have been shared years earlier. But here's the thing. The data he eventually provided, well, according to Ken Thompson's analysis— It also appears to be fake.
1: In the interim, Steve had his research associate produce a genetic data set that would have been like the type of genetic data set that underlied my study and upload it to these internal databases. And what they did, and it's incredibly obvious, is that they just copied existing records. You know, if you just made up a random barcode at a store and a cashier scanned it, it wouldn't scan to anything. You actually have to match the barcode of the species or in in the grocery store analogy, the product. You can't just make up letters. You have to actually have the right sequence. And so they just copied publicly available records that had already been generated for these species and concocted a, a fake data set, uploaded it on these private repositories. And then it was incredibly easy to prove that the data were, um, were, were not legitimate.
4: On the financial disclosure front of his defense, Stephen Newmaster said in his statement, quote, I have acknowledged funding organizations that support the research of these manuscripts and I do not have financial interests in any of the industry partners associated with funding any of the projects associated with these manuscripts. The university is my only source of income and has been since I began my employment as a faculty member. This statement can be supported by my Revenue Canada tax assessments for any year if required. End quote. The academic journal Biodiversity and Conservation has since retracted Ken and Stevens' published research. The editor's note says, quote, Concerns were raised regarding the data sources and reproducibility. The validity of the data included in this article could not be confirmed. Author Ken A. Thompson agrees to this retraction. Author Stephen G. Newmaster has not responded to any correspondence from the editor or publisher about this retraction. End quote. But ultimately, this pattern didn't stop with the three papers that were detailed in the formal complaint to the University of Guelph. Charles Piller spent months digging and found so much more.
3: In a radio interview during COVID, he described his work sequencing the genome of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, several months before it was discovered.
0: So you said you were called in last fall. So a year ago, this is before we knew about uh, the current coronavirus, uh, COVID-19. So you were doing something for all coronaviruses? No, this is specific for COVID-19. So the, much of of the world already knew about corona infections that were starting to take off in China on the mainland. I thought we only heard about them in December at the earliest. No, there was, well... That would be hitting public news, but in the scientific community, we are already sequencing samples, blood samples, saliva samples. and So, in
3: other words, an impossibility. And this is the sort of seemingly cavalier messaging that he often engaged in, where he would display other people's work as his own, sometimes even displaying information that was not in any way related to his own work or the subject matter of his speaking engagement, and yet describing
4: it as his own work. It's something Newmaster did before, Pillar says, when he broke into another hot botanical market, the cannabis business. Some years back,
3: he had ventured forth into the world of cannabis authentication, which was becoming a big business at that time. And he basically took images from other scientific analyses, one involving different types of ginseng, and displayed it in one of his speeches as an example of his own work detecting different strains of cannabis.
0: As you can see, each one of these dots down in the ordination represents multiple samples that we purchased, so we we spent a fair amount of money on this. We have a good budget. And we then classified the metabolites. So if you look at the bottom at the PC ordination, the first thing to understand in these ordinations is that two dots that are close together have metabolomic profiles that are similar. So think of it as a similarity matrix.
3: So it's it wasn't even cannabis. And I think an even more bizarre example of that is that he was trying to make a name for himself as a expert in distinguishing between different strains of cannabis. So this is a way of manufacturers uh, authenticating the claims they make for the different products that they're selling in the cannabis realm. And so he was describing an experiment he did where he tested three different strains of cannabis uh, using a, a machine called a nuclear magnetic resonance imager. And then he showed a chart that was meant to show the similarities within each strain so that companies could say, look, we tested in this way and we authenticated these strains in this way. And you can see on my chart this experiment we did that shows how closely the different strains align to each other and are distinguished from each other.
4: As you heard, Newmaster previously displayed ginseng DNA to illustrate his claims about cannabis, But on this other occasion, he went even further afield. This very official-looking chart he used wasn't data from the botanical world
3: at all. The chart he showed, not only was it not cannabis, not only was it not even a plant, it was arrest records in the 50 U.S. states. So you got to ask yourself, what is a, a scientist thinking when he takes a chart that's easily findable online? of arrest records by police in the 50 US states and describes it as his own experiment distinguishing between cannabis strains. It's just a chart that shows colored dots. And to the naive observer, you're thinking, wow, this guy, he is really amazing. He did this elaborate experiment to prove that you can clearly distinguish between cannabis strains using this scientific method. Uh, In fact, it was utterly phony as we were able to prove in our investigation. So this is part of the litany of examples that we found involving apparent plagiarism, fabulism, making up aspects of his scientific record, making up aspects of his record, including being a fellow at a particular institute in Australia making up the size of his grants to seem more impressive, saying he got an enormous amount of money from a Canadian research agency. And in fact, it was a tiny fraction of the amount that he stated according to the agency's own records. Sometimes this became so, (laughs) I I, I laugh a little bit and pardon me for that, but it's hard not to when you see the brazen quality of some
1: examples of things that we found this is a case where it's very clear to me that the processes that we use to evaluate accusations of scientific misconduct in Canada are insufficient.
4: And that gets to the crux of the issue here for Charles Piller, for Paul Ebert, and for the guy who started this all, Ken Thompson. The case of alleged misconduct against Stephen Newmaster is one thing, but they are all far more concerned with what they've witnessed in the investigation and what it means for trust in scientific research in Canada.
1: I wasn't convinced that I was wrong. You know, people often say something to the tune of trust the science and things like this. And I think it's important to note, you know, science works. Like the methods that we're using to evaluate data fabrication are scientific methods, right? They're falsifiable. We have hypotheses, you know, if this data is real, this should be what we'll see. If data is not real, this is what we should see. And it's really the administration, so not non-scientists, who are standing in the way of science being sort of this own self-correcting process. And so I think trust in science should be very high, but the way that we're investigating scientific misconduct in Canada, there's this political step that we have to go through involving these university administrators, and that is preventing the scientific method from really reaching completion. They're sort of just stopping it. And that's pretty problematic. Anytime
5: society's trust in the scientific process is shattered, it tends to resurface at moments like this when human health, human values are at risk. And so Everyone, you know, every time you see a car speed through a red light, uh, you know, unless there's some penalty imposed on that, society begins to distrust the fact that we're taking care of the system. Uh, The standards are evolving. So Denmark first in 2017, uh, Sweden in 2020. Recognize that universities research institutions cannot effectively investigate themselves there's too much uh, conflict of interests and so they moved to establish national offices for research integrity and and move the investigations out of the research uh, institutes and i think that's what uh, i would really like to see in canada it's what's required to to maximize societal trust. I mean, our mission is to a- advance understanding of our world and you can't do that if individuals working within that system are fabricating data.
3: There's an expression of follow the science that has become more and more popular uh, but you need to make sure that the science is accurate and the only way that we're going to build and ensure public trust in the scientific enterprise is to expose wrongdoing where we see it, to expose questionable activities when we see them, and to police the field in an aggressive way.
4: The University of Guelph was reached for comment for this story, and given the school's role in policing this particular issue, one would have hoped that they would be willing to engage with the subject. Instead, they sent a statement that
1: said, The university takes allegations of research misconduct very seriously. The investigation in question remains active. The university will continue to follow the policy and procedures and act as appropriate and necessary based on the final outcome. The investigation process and any preliminary findings are confidential.
4: So at the end of all of this, it does appear as if Stephen Newmaster will continue his work at the university. His publishing record shows no signs of him slowing down, with 15 articles and book chapters published last year alone. And most recently, he's written about how different probiotic products, a new hot commodity, and different cooking spices and herbs are fraudulently packaged and sold. Is it true? It could be. But boy, it's sure hard to tell, after hearing the whole story that came before it. And that's the problem, isn't it? How are we supposed to have trust in science? as has become our mantra, when stories like this can still be told.
2: That is your Canada Land episode. If you like it, please support us. Click the link on the show notes. Go to canadaland.com join get some merch from us. Get ad-free podcasts. Get our thanks and appreciation. You can email me at jesse at I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at canadaland. Our website is canadaland.com. New episode of Commons going up this week. Make sure you catch that. This episode was produced with help from Jonathan Goldsby. It was reported by our senior producer, Sarah Larniuk. Tristan Capicione is our audio editor and technical producer. Kieran Oudshorn is our managing editor. Our theme music is by So Cold. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Once again, if you like this show, this is how it gets made. People support it. Click on the link in the show notes. You can sign up in minutes. It's really easy and it's like five bucks a month to get in or go and have a look on our website, canadaland.com slash join. There are thousands of people who are helping us rebuild journalism in this country. Please become one of them. for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman, found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was
1: connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.